0: Today's episode is brought to you by Me Undies. Get twenty percent off your first order at meundies.com/gilbert. again, rising from the dead, to introduce you to part two of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, our special Halloween episode. This week, we speak to the grandson. ...of one of my former co-stars, Ron Chaney Jr. We speak to his grandson, Ron Cheney. Then I talk to a former child actress... ...who shared a screen with yours truly... ...in Ghost of Frankenstein... Janet and Gallo. Don't miss it. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. Hi, I'm Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co host, Frank Santo Padre, our guest this week, is a personal thrill for me. He's an actor, author, makeup artist, public speaker. Also happens to be the grandson of my favorite actor, the great Lon Chaney Jr., the only actor to play all four of Universal's classic monsters. Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, and, of course, The Wolfman. He's also the great-grandson of the legendary man of a thousand faces, silent screen icon, Lon Chaney. Please welcome to the show, Ron Chaney.
1: Well, happy Halloween, everybody. Great to be here.
0: And and I should say to all the politically correct people on the Internet that when I'm introducing Ron Cheney's grandson, I'm calling him Ron Cheney. That's his name, Ron Cheney. I'm not making fun of the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going, oh, it's tra- Ron Cheney. No,
2: that's not what I'm doing Because here. you never do that kind of politically sensitive <laughs> no, material. No. <laughs> As anyone who's seen your act can, can attest. It didn't have
1: anything to do with the two Chinese characters he played now, did it? <laughs> no.
2: no. That's right. That's right. He did. Okay. Now. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thanks for doing well, it. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So I, okay, now I remember when I was a kid. They used to show that James Cagney movie that was a biography of Lon Cheney that it was called Man of a Thousand Faces. Now, how much of that was actually true?
1: Well, there was quite a bit of it was true, but a lot of it was sensationalized. Uh, uh, during that era of time, they changed the story somewhat. So, uh, you know, a lot of it was true, but a lot of it was certainly not sequential or chronologically in order, and I think probably one of the biggest flaws in it was, um, you know, Dorothy Malone being a beautiful woman, you didn't see her as a 15-year-old. So, you know, <laughs> the mindset of a 15-year-old and somebody, you know, beautiful in their 20s, you know, late 20s, gives an all to a differ- different take on the story Oh, so uh, she was 15? Itself. My great-grandmother, Cleva, was 15 years old when she first, uh, wow you know, on the road with lawn. 15, 16 years old, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, because Dorothy Malone was definitely fully grown
2: in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how does your granddad feel about being portrayed by Roger Smith?
1: Well, you look nothing like thing, him. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the funny thing is well, not necessarily funny, but my grandfather was very uh, integral in the making of that film. In fact, I have the treatment that was written. Uh, here with uh, Ralph Will and he was uh, signed a deal with Universal to do that. And, uh, you know, they went through the whole process, and uh, he was on. He he was interviewed, obviously, as part of this uh, development of the treatment. And he brought in his aunt and his uncles and the set musicians and friends of the family to make sure the story was pretty good. And then it went through afterwards, I think, about five different rewrites, until the final product, and that was what was released. And my great-grandmother was very disappointed because she also was interviewed with it. In fact, I think at one of the early screenings, she just pretty much got up and slammed out the door. So <laughs> she didn't care much for the way that the story went. But, you know, a lot of the uh, points in it were true for sure, and a
0: lot were not. And um, with Lon Chaney, oh, well, I and I realized both Lon Chaney and Lon Chaney Jr., uh, Lon Chaney, I saw Lon Chaney walking with the Queen <laughs> doing The Werewolf of London, uh-huh. and I saw Lon Chaney Jr. walk all, both Warren Zevon there.
2: My old my old neighbor, Mr. Zeevon.
1: And now, oh, I used to listen to a lot of Warren Oh, yeah,
2: I was telling Gilbert we were neighbors in West Hollywood. He was an interesting man.
1: Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh-huh. But, yeah. Now,
0: Lon Chaney Sr., the great silent Screen comic, who dealt with the macabre, Um, he didn't take acting lessons. How did he learn his craft? How did he learn how to act?
1: I think you have to go back to his childhood uh, with both of his parents being deaf-mutes. So he really didn't even speak until he was four years old. He learned to even start to talk because of that. Um, But he was very close with his parents, and uh, at a very young age he had to drop out of school because his mother was stricken with uh, rheumatism, like inflammatory rheumatism. So her only method of being able to communicate via sign language was her hands. She was bedridden for about three years. So he had to drop out of school to take care of her. The older brother got a job. The father worked. The younger siblings were below, so he had to take care of his mother and them and he basically became a little human newspaper when he would go to his father's barber shop and listen to all the town's news and go back and, and make up little costumes and little skits that he would uh, act out for his mother and they had this extreme uh... bond just using their eyes that he learned to communicate and act out the little things that were going on around town so Probably that was his first bit of backing, and I think everything in his career had something to do with the sign language and that early foundation of expression and pantomime and all those things and gestures, things of that nature.
0: You know, this this is interesting because I can think of about three different actors and comedians, uh, Gene Weiler, uh, Jan Murray, and I think Jackie Gleason, too, Their mothers died when they were young, and each one of them, the mother would be sick in bed, they'd go out to a movie or a vaudeville show, and then come back and act it out for their mother.
1: Oh, wow, I never heard that. I I didn't know that.
0: Wow.
1: Okay, well, (laughs) he was doing that in, uh, let's see, 1893, you know, about that time.
0: And, and I saw uh, both Frank and I watched it. Lon Cheney Jr. was showing some of the signs that deaf people use. And then they showed scenes from Cheney Sr.'s. Oh, it's, the cli- it's
2: a clip from U.S. Uh, from for it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. that, that you must know, Ron. And in fact, it's available on YouTube. It's fascinating to watch your grandfather interpreting his father's style and his, and his work. Yeah, oh, like, absolutely. he's very affectionate about it, Like,
0: too. first you see uh, Lon Chaney Jr. showing, like, this is the way to say hate, that deaf people say hate. This is the way they say love. This is the way they say fear. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Lon Chaney is doing all of those deaf people moves as the mm-hmm. character.
1: Absolutely. You could see abbreviated versions throughout his career, even in The Phantom. You just see subtle gestures that, kind of, somebody that would be deaf that could read that type of thing it would make sense to them. So there was always something that he would add, whether it was via that sign or expression or something. He was certainly a master of it and
0: unique. And he met his wife. She was a dancer. Right. Uh, well, she, is, his, she is a singer. My, well, I think yeah. she, at first. Oh, really? She was a drunk. Or <laughs> I saw something that said she was. Uh, she wanted to be a dancer, but she wasn't that good. And Lon Chaney taught her how to dance.
1: Well, he was a choreographer, and uh, my, that was my great grandmother Cleva, and. Uh, she was the 15-year-old that got the audition, you know, call, and she had been getting trained, you know, for singing. She always, you know, her mother had given her some schooling, and she had had some background going to different areas for for singing. So when the troupe came along and played in Oklahoma, uh, you know, they would always do advances. So the bigger audience, if you could get some of the townspeople to, you know, be in the play, then all their family come. I think we still all do that today. Yeah. <laughs> can but <laughs> uh, nonetheless, uh, she got that audition, and then she came in. They went, well, "You're too young. You can't play. You know, you're not even 16 years old yet. You know." And she, so well, let me, you know, okay, let me hear you sing. So my great grandmother could, she could really sing. She could hit the high note. She could break glass. Let's put it that way. So she was just like this, you know, diamond in the rough that they discovered. And then uh, she wanted to go on the road, and her mother wouldn't let her. And she said, as soon as I'm of age, I'll run away. She was very high strong, always was. And, uh, you know, they, they had met. Lon was working with the uh, company at that time that was doing Delmar Gardens in Oklahoma. So there you go. That's how they met. And then when they went to go on the road, you know, he was taking care of her, and they just kind of became sweethearts as they were traveling around. and. 1905, 1906, uh, Oklahoma Territory, and throughout you know different and, parts of the nation via train.
0: And he would travel, like these acting troops would travel, and and I heard like you know they would already be struggling for money. What with what little the performance made, and sometimes the shows would run out of money, and they'd be stranded in the middle of nowhere
1: that's absolutely true and you know they weren't vaudeville necessarily they weren't vaudeville but they were uh light com uh light operas comedic operas and in 1905 going in oklahoma and arkansas and all the way down to florida they went up into canada and went both ways and very often they would certainly go broke on the road so they got stranded so often you know whenever they would make money it would be great for a little while and then they'd lose it and they'd you know they just did nothing but struggle it wasn't going anywhere and that's when they finally decided to move to california he followed his brother out here who had relocated in los angeles and was a stage carpenter. you know one of the uh theaters there
0: <laughs> and cheney and, and his wife eventually they started uh, their marriage started to face rough times
1: uh, very true, um, yeah. a lot of jealousies because actually Cleva became the bigger star. He oh. was more of a second comedian, she was more of a star and a feature as she went along, so her popularity was you know pretty big and mean she when they got to California uh, they played with Fatty Arbuckle and that group there, I think. Wow. Harris Hartman, yes. They all were on stage together back in those early and, and, days in and, L.A.
0: To tell our audience, this is Fatty Arbuckle, whose career was destroyed by a whole
2: sex scandal.
0: He was found <laughs> innocent. But yeah, yes, after was, being tried,
2: I think, three times. Yeah.
1: Well, so which leads to some along story, too, and what a scandal could do. Oh, and uh, even way back in those days, because it did, it ruined his career, you know, for sure. Um, he had to work under different names, you know, that
0: yeah, kid. But, I, I heard he worked under the name Will Be Good. Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. I, I wh- wh- which scandal are you referring to, Ron? Was it the the, the, the his wife's attempted suicide?
1: Yeah, I you're, mean, eventually that's what kind of nixed his stage yeah, career, because he never, had, he you're, you're never gra- had attention to going into film. Yeah, sure himself. And and the way she did it. Yeah, well, a lot of the Man of a Thousand Faces, there was something to it, but not all of the story was there. I have my great-grandmother's journal uh, that she wrote, and uh, after he passed away it's a response to a a magazine that was published by Liberty Magazine, and uh, she was quite irate with the way that the story went, so she wrote her version of it. So I have that, and then I have a lot of the notes from his second wife. So I've been working on a book a number of years, kind of try to be the blueprint of a new film on
3: the
0: on Cheney. <laughs> be- because they, according to story, at least, Cheney was on stage and she appeared in the wings and drank, I think it's like, curide of
2: mercury.
0: And and as a suicide, like she was going to kill herself. It's a
2: majestic theater, right? Yeah. In Los Angeles? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And yeah, I made
1: the news, you know. Uh, she was rushed to the hospital, and she actually had just previously played her own gig down the street there and previous to going there, and they'd had some fighting going on. There's a little more backstory than the way that it was presented. Oh, yeah. so, it, was pretty, yeah. it, was, it was a lot more drama going on than they depicted wow. in film. And, uh, <laughs> of uh, so other things were going on, and... Uh, which led to this event, and obviously was basically the ending. It took a couple of more years before they were finally divorced, but that was basically the end of the marriage.
0: And and so it like she lived, but it, it killed her singing voice. Of course,
1: uh, she explained it differently in her journal, yeah. but yeah, definitely affected it. My great grand—I was—I I knew my great grandmother, you know, and I remember her having a raspy voice. When she, we have pictures of her when we were kids, you know, she actually survived quite quite long after Lon passed away.
0: I I just remember yeah. in, in Man of a Thousand Faces, one of my favorite scenes is she shows up, probably never happened, but she shows up on the set of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Cagney in uh, Hunchback makeup goes mm-hmm. over and she gasps, and Cagney goes, still afraid of freaks, Cleaver? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: well... I, they
0: took
1: that's some right. liberties, they, huh,
2: Ron? Yeah, they took some
1: liberties. And, you know, and Cleaver also, wasn't like that, I don't think so at all. I think she had a lot of regrets for what she did, and she she laid a lot of blame on herself, so, you know, it wasn't that she... It was, you know, <laughs> jealousies and the business and those things were going on, and, you know, funny times during that period of time still do, but uh, I guess our family's always been transgendered in that nature.
2: <laughs> also, hopefully, so, um, hopefully
1: mostly good, but there's certainly some tragedies that exist, no doubt, in our family.
0: Also, in the movie, I mean, they're talking about, you know, Lon Chaney, who was uh, a a brilliant makeup artist. And because he did all his own makeups and hunchbacked. Uh, with that little
2: kit that he, tra- Fanta- that he yes, traveled around yes, with. Yes, there'd yeah.
0: always be those photos of that little beat up metal kit. Yep. And he was <laughs> brilliant at makeup. But in the movie, they used one of the Westmores to do Cagney's makeup. And it, it's so one of the biggest glaring problems there. And, and the Westmores are talented. But the makeup was terrible. Interesting.
1: Well, that was another big discrepancy. You know, my my search always to find the right person, you have to have similar bone structure or, you know. And I think that was the difference. Uh, If you look at Cagney, he had a little bigger head. long was much thinner. So no matter what appliance you would put on, it didn't look... You know, and it's kind of hard. I think that's always the tough part to compare yourself to Lon. You know, and it was only one of them. So you know, you're comparing yourself to the masterpiece. You know, of what he created. So, plus they had some issues. I I do believe with that. Uh, Uh, Universal, MGM, if you remember at the end, they showed the different pictures, you know, kind of in drawings. Was that because, that was because MGM still held rights to those films. So that's how they had to depict it to get around that.
0: And the funny thing is, I've seen photos of you and films of you. Uh, You actually have a resemblance to your great-grandfather.
1: Yeah, I do, you know, and uh, so I do go into the makeup. I enjoy it. I do it for more for fun, for tribute. Uh, but usually I've, I've written something, and I, I usually have a... <laughs> there's something behind why I do it, whether it's just a test for, or for fun or for the fans to enjoy, then I'll do it for those reasons. But with most of the makeups I've done, there was a reason behind each and every one of them, so <laughs> with different projects I'm working on.
2: You know, I saw an interview with Forrest Ackerman, Ron. He said if you're I don't know if you agree with this, I'd be curious. He said if your great grandfather had lived, that he would have played Dracula. I mean, he was being he was being courted to play Dracula uh, at the time of his death. But Forrest Ackerman was saying he would have played Frankenstein. He would have played Jekyll and Hyde. He believed that he would have gone on to play all the classic characters or at least been offered the roles.
1: You would have thought so. I would agree with that, too, because think of it, you know, MGM loaned him out before for the Phantom. He was under contract, but they knew that his star would get bigger with the Phantom, so they loaned him out for that. And why would they not loan him out again for another big role like that? Right. Uh, it would make sense that he would have been in line or probably, and his contract would have been ending, too, so he would have been, you know, uh, free again. He would have been independent, although I think he enjoyed working with Irving Thalberg at MGM. He's one of the few executives he trusted.
2: And his death, of course, in 1930, we've talked about this with, with Bela Jr., Yeah, opens the door for Lugosi
1: oh, yeah. to
2: be cast as as, as the Count.
1: Yeah, it's funny how that all came kind of full cycle there, um, because, you know, Cheney not doing it, he went to Lugosi, and then, of course, he turned down the Frankenstein, Karloff got it. Right, and right. Then, Ten years later, they were looking for someone else, and he got handed back to Cheney again to finish up. Yeah, you know, so that was kind of cool. It's
2: a cycle. <laughs> Gilbert, you thought I thought you thought this was uh, you'd think this was interesting, uh, and you probably know this already. Yeah. But Forrest Ackerman was saying that he believed that Groucho. Do you know this? Have you heard this before? Oh, I'm not Patterned sure. Patterned his crouch and his uh, part of his character, his movements in Lon Cheney in London after midnight. Yeah,
0: I had heard that someone who had seen. London After Midnight, which is a totally lost film. All you see is a scary vampire makeup he yep. has. But they say that the walk I mean, people who saw it now, you know, who remember it laugh because he's walking around like Crouch on Mars. Have you heard that, Ron?
1: You know, I did more recently. I never knew that, but yeah, and I tried looking it up to see what he walked like, you know, and it kind of was a, he would bend his legs inward and kind of into this stooped grouch. So, yeah, it looks similar.
0: <laughs> and, okay. and the funny thing is, Cheney, who did this scary makeup, Phantom of the Opera and all these others, never actually was a monster in any of his films.
1: You're right, you know, and if you look at uh, very much the theme of his films, it was the unrequited love, and he sacrificed himself most often for somebody else's happiness at the end, which, and then he played all these deformed characters or misread characters, which leads you straight back to the deafness in the family. And, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of ridicule. His father's name was Dummy in town, he was Dummy Cheney. He was the barber in you know, called Dummy Cheney, so... He had to listen to that stuff all his life. Yeah,
0: that's what uh, they call deaf people, dummies. Well, that was really what
1: they call them, even when they do interviews. Oh, yeah, oh, Dummy Cheney, yeah, he wore back over there. He was the barber in that head barber shop, you know, uh, in Colorado Springs for 35 straight years, the head head barber, you know. So you can imagine somebody with. uh, sign language and using their hands, how adept they would be to doing shapes, of course there's razors and everything else. I mean, and he did. He sat at the head chair the entire time and was like in a suit every day on time and that's where a lot of Lon's fortitude came from was just definitely the character just like his father.
2: Well and the work ethic, I mean and the sacrifices, the physical toll oh, that yeah. some of those costumes and and oh, and yeah. makeup. I yeah. uh, forgive me, Ron. And I'm, I did did some research on this, and I can't remember the film where he's playing a legless, uh, where he's got his knees. Oh, is that the penalty? I think it's the. Is it the penalty? Yes. Yes. It's, and he's got the and he's got his legs strapped up behind the uh, the top coat. The, and and yeah. you know the the the, <laughs> and, the pain that he must have and endured. And I
0: heard he would jump and land on his knees. It, I yeah. would recommend if any if the audience has never
1: seen a Cheney film, that would be one I'd I'd recommend seeing because you truly think he had no legs the way yeah. he devised this thing, and he did definitely torture himself and probably most of his roles and <laughs> in the some way or another because it was always left up to him to create it, so he yeah. had to figure that
0: himself. And I heard with the Hunchback, the hump on his back was like sixty pounds. And he wore these straps to keep himself bent over the whole
2: time. Yes.
1: yes. You can see the harness, and it does it as this, you know, kind of center chest piece, of ring where it would, they would latch the, you know, the strap on <laughs> to pull him down. So he physically couldn't stand up straight. He was stayed hunched. So he suffered for that one, too. And also after that, he had to wear glasses because he did damage to his eye.
0: Oh, geez. This I hadn't heard. ever ever after the hunchback he had to wear you'll
1: see him wearing glasses after that
2: oh wow yeah that's what i'm talking about i mean the personal sacrifice that that he went through for his art
1: well the funny you know how how do you know until you do it and by the time you do it then the damage is done i mean i've kind of experimented with some of the makeups and you know i did a little test on london and I think I figured out how he did one of his things, and, you know, there was, it definitely was painful, and you know, my eyes aren't, weren't quite the same afterwards, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I was trying to find that secret, you know.
0: And is it true, see, because this, you never know when it gets to be a story, that he used a fish hook to turn his nose up as the Phantom of the Opera?
1: Well, I'll share this since I shared it at the event I did last week. Uh he uh my grandfather kinda of threw him an idea when he was watching him trying to figure out how to flare those nose his nose up and he was trying different things and he said, you know, why don't you hey, how about a lady's hair pin? You know, you kinda of pull it up on there and he thought it was a pretty good idea. And uh so he tried it. Um, that's pretty good, you know, but after about two days, it ate right through his nose, and Graham said he he bled like a stuck pig, you know, and he cussed him out for that. And then he went back, and then he said, well, but but," they gave him, he needed time for his nose to heal, so he started working on the mouthpiece, you know, so, yeah, he did some extreme thing. He figured out something else to work, but uh, (laughs) you can see what he went, went through, and, again, how would you know till? You've already done the damn,
0: you know. And Cheney, uh, when he was struggling, well, anything, he he just wanted to have a career in showbiz, he did, like, every single job you could on those. It was his work ethic. You know, he
1: he was uh, constantly on the move. You know, if he was standing around, he'd go help move lights. You know, if he was doing, because when he was, and it really goes back to his stage days, and even back to his childhood, when not only did he have to take care of his mother, he had to take care of his younger siblings. You know, so he was, he was cooking and he was washing dishes and he was doing laundry back in those days. You know, that's all by hand, everything. So. You know, this is where he learned a lot of the early skills, for sure, that carried with him throughout his life, you know, and, networking that work aspect too.
0: And one time he picked up a hitchhiker by the name oh, of Boris Karloff. I, I
2: thought you were going to find that story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let you tell that one because it's a good one.
0: Uh, oh, well, I heard Boris Karloff told the story he was hitchhiking. He was a struggling actor. And he gets picked up by Lon Chaney Sr. And Lon Chaney basically was giving him advice. And he says, find find something that you can do that other people can't do
1: pretty good advice,
0: huh? <laughs>
2: yes. Well, he was generous that way, wasn't he, Ron? I mean, I was i was kind of moved by these stories of him standing up for struggling actors, for crew members, you know, uh, uh, righting wrongs. Uh, there's a great quote by Wallace Beery that I know you know, where he, he says he was someone who walked with kings and never lost his common touch. Uh,
1: absolutely. Uh, you know, he had too much struggle in his life. The, the effort was mostly a struggle, I would have to say most of his life was a struggle till he finally attained you know some level of fame, but he was a true artist. It was everything to him once he discovered he wasn 't going to be on stage anymore, and by the time he hit the silent films, he could go make money and he could, the more things he could do, the more money he could make because he needed to get a home for his science once they separated. My grandfather was put in a home for, you know, divorcing. That was Lon Chaney
0: so. Jr. He was put yeah, away in so a home.
1: He, you know, he, he remarried a gal that, uh, was actually a chorus girl that they worked with, with Colvin Dill. And, um, uh, you know, they got married around 19, right after their divorce was final. They both, they got married and, and then Gramps, you know, lived with them. And, uh, Cleveland was pretty much out of the picture till later. You know, it wasn't like what they depicted in the story, that she had no contact with him or he didn't know that she was alive. It was just the fact she was no longer around. And I think once that bridge was burned, Lon didn't really forget stuff like that. So, you know. That's
2: that's admirable. You know, Gil, we've been talking a lot about me undies for a few episodes now, but we uh, we should take a moment to tell the listeners again how great an opportunity this is.
0: Yes, because they they sent me underwear.
2: They sent you underwear. They sent
0: me underwear, like, and it's so soft, mm-hmm. and, and it it just is so comfortable, and it's got all these different colors and patterns. That ever since me undies sent me those underwear. Uh, I've been walking around without pants.
2: Yes, on. I'm, I'm, i I just been down the
0: street with no <laughs> pants because it's it's it's
2: stupid
0: when they've got uh, great designs like that to cover it nope. with
2: pants. No one screams. There's a pantsless Gilbert Gottfried no, standing in the no, street.
0: No, no, they all expect it.
2: <laughs> this is what's so great about MeUndies. They sell luxury underwear, and you you would know at half the price. And they've created the most comfortable underwear. The tons of and tons of styles and colors, which you just spoke about, all you have to do is go to MeUndies.com slash Gilbert. You pick out what you like, and uh, they'll send you your underwear just like they sent it to Gil. No shipping, money back guarantee.
0: And also, this is uh, some Hollywood trivia. Here. Yeah. You know they would be hanging me undies out on the clotheslines, and cars would be so distracted by the beautiful colors and patterns. Of me that they crash, really? and that's how James Dean died. Really? Yeah. This has been proven. This is. I know. I knew the cop who was at the scene. And, and it was the colors of me undies. Yeah. Of yeah that distracted. He pointed uh-huh. to the design. He said, <laughs> See, Jimmy was looking at those me
2: just go to MeUndies.com slash Gilbert, and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's 20% off an already great deal. And those happen to be three of Gilbert's favorite words. Yeah. 20, <laughs> you would think your three favorite words were Lon Chaney Jr., but no, it's actually yes. 20% off. Yes. Uh, great underwear at an amazing price, and it helps support our show. Um, and they have socks, they have sweats, they have shirts. Just think, Gilbert, uh, socks that you can one day sew little dots into.
0: Ah, uh, yes, I could sew dots in the socks, and I I'm able to sew pictures of Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> into the socks. On the
2: socks. I had no idea yes, you were I'm, that I'm talented. I'm so, so one last time, it's meundies.com slash Gilbert. That's m e u n d i e s. dot com slash Gilbert to get twenty percent off your first order. So, so let's talk a little bit about your grandpa, who was uh, who was born in the trunk. <laughs> oh wait, wait. We should
0: talk about how according to Cheney Junior Oh yeah. How he was born. Mm-hmm. In Oklahoma,
2: right?
1: Oklahoma. They were at Del Mar Gardens. I went there, uh to, to try to verify it and I just could not for the life of verify where this old uh, place was, Belle Isle, because there was no lake there. And then <laughs> I went to the, uh, I think the Oklahoma Historical Society after researching, and finally I found it. It used to be this wonderful place, but then it was overrun with mosquitoes, so it didn't exist, and there was pictures of this lake there. And uh, during February, of course, it's cold in February, and, you know, Cleveland yeah, uh, went into an early
0: labor. According to Cheney Jr., he described it As he was black and dead when he was born. And the doctor was about ready to give up and just bury him. And Loncini Sr. grabbed him, ran outside in freezing winter, crashed a hole through the ice in the lake and dunked him to shock him into being alive.
1: That's how the story goes. (laughs) Great story. (laughs) I hope it's true. (laughs) You like that, huh? Yes, uh, he was born like two months premature. Uh, My great-grandmother, they refer to it, it he looked like a little, what a cube of butter looked like, you know, and uh, he was revived, and then they, Lon made a, a, you know, back in those days, they had shoe boxes, so he cut holes in it all over and then he lined the whole thing with cotton, and then they put my grandfather in this, you know, box-lined thing, and put him in one of the old uh, stoves back then, like an early
0: incubator,
1: and that's how they kind of started nursing them along. And so
0: they six, had Lon <laughs> Chaney Jr., the Wolf Man, was put in a in a shoebox, and the <laughs> shoebox was put in the oven. Well, that's it. <laughs> Two, <six>. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he, was ba- he was probably made one of the first incubators, you know, to <laughs> kind of keep him alive. And he said six months later, Dad was using me as a prop in a stage act, like juggling him in a stage act, you know, as little infant.
0: Now that's... He made
1: his first appearance at, in, at six months old.
0: Kind of like See, Buster Keaton? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he got the, yeah, Buster Keaton, they used to, they practically killed him on stage. They used experience. to toss him into the audience. According to Jimmy
2: Carron,
1: well, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, those guys yeah. were just amazing, just phenomenal artists. You know, Charlie Chaplin, Chaney. What a what a magical time those silent films, because it truly was a a different time, and there's so much more pantomime was involved in in silent films of that day, and. You know, music contributed so much to them that we've kind of lost. And now there's new shows, you know, with scores, which you see them in a whole nother light that way.
0: So Cheney Jr. was basically tossed around like a prop?
1: (laughs) 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 Indeed. He he became a part of the show. (laughs) Well,
2: he did. I mean, he grew up on the road. He was very much a child of show business.
1: Oh, absolutely. He definitely was a proverbial baby born in a trunk, no doubt about it. And even Lon made a hammock, you know, in the caboose that they used to travel on and So that they would put him in in there while they were traveling. Because remember, we're talking 1905, 1906, going down to road, you know, a train track. They were building the train sometime, the track as they were going along. So, they would play in barns. They would play in, you know, storefronts. Very seldom did they actually get a legitimate theater unless they reached Chicago or one of the bigger cities. So, you know, you can imagine the struggle. And, was
0: And was when quite Cheney amazing. and his wife were performing. They would hand Cheney Jr. over to the chorus girls. Yes. Yeah. Hey.
1: <laughs> well, Clevis started doing her own thing, so she was becoming a big star. She was a big cabaret star. You know, she was a hit up in San Francisco, and then she was a hit in L.A. And, uh, you know, Lon, had, he, was, he was the stage manager. That's what he did. He stage managed. He played roles in those early stage days. So he was the choreographer. He was doing about five people's jobs. I mean, he was that, you know, uh, just high-strong that way, you know. And he would do that for probably 10, 12 hours a day. They put on, like, five and six shows, matinee shows all day long into the night. And so the chorus girls, you know, Cleva was out, and they were kind of separated, and she was doing her own thing. So Creighton, my grandfather, would go with his dad to the shows, and the girls would watch him, you know, the course girls would watch him while Lon was working. So. Yeah, he was
2: still Creighton then. He, yeah. a Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. wouldn't happen for yeah. years.
0: Yeah, I mean yeah. even as a kid watching the ending of um, Man of a Thousand Faces where Cagney is dying and he hands his makeup kit that says Lon Chaney on it and he takes a crayon and draws Junior is total bullshit of course. <laughs> Well, especially because he didn't want his yeah, son to go into that the business.
1: Story varied a little bit there. I think that was something that uh, uh, you know they made up. Certainly, well, well did, didn't he, run off.
2: I'm sorry to cut you off. Didn't, didn't he discourage uh, Creighton, young Creighton, from going into show business? I mean, he. Uh,
1: yeah. You know, he knew the struggles. He saw it. He lived it. You know, he knew everything about the business. He knew how the executives worked. and, you, know, you know, by that time, you know, he was big enough start to start calling some of his own shots now, but he never forgot this, the hardships of it and the breakup of the marriage. It was really hard on him. I don't think he wanted to see his own son. He would have rather seen him in a more stable
0: occupation. So. He, he wanted him, and I think he did for a while, Chaney Jr., work as a plumber.
1: Yeah. He, he married, uh, well, my grandma, of course. He married grandma, and uh, you know, her father owned General Water Heating Company in Los Angeles. They made all the water heaters, so the company did very well. He became the secretary of the company, and then when he had his opportunity after his dad died that someone you know was going to get him an audition, he resigned, because it was in his heart. He, he grew up with it. I don't think he could have helped it, even what he wanted. It was in him you know, to go pursue it, so when his opportunity came he did
0: and his childhood was a lot of it years in like basically like an orphanage
1: uh, no no, no. Uh, between the years for a, a time he was he was basically put into a home uh, you know uh, just you know, because Lon was working and Cleveland was a mess. You know, she was a mess. She she didn't show up at the divorce hearing. She, would, you know, she just she knew that she couldn't take care of him. Let's put it that way. She regretted it all her life. But that, that's the way it was. <laughs>
0: and, and he was struggling. He started to get bit parts in movies, like in real low-budget uh, movies, as Creighton Cheney. And... Then they started pushing him to... Uh, they said, uh, we can only sell you as Lon Chaney Jr.
1: Well, that's... You know, Long was pretty... You know, he became the number one box office star. His movies were still big, With Sound... You know, Sound was coming into play. Now he did one talking film, but... You know, he On was... only
0: 3. Right.
1: Yeah, the yeah. remake. There. Remake. So... You know he kind of followed in as he, he knew of of anybody that was one person of anybody knew that his father could never you know that he was so unique it was him, so he, he didn't really want to follow with the same name you know he no i think he i don't think he was opposed to it. I think the second wife was more opposed to it than he was, and he was cool with it but uh he didn't so he went to he signed with he had a, several offers, but he signed with uh David Selznick at RKO, because he was allowed to keep his name, and he started his career as Craig and Chaney.
0: Yeah, because I I had always heard he was, like, kind of, for the rest of his life, embarrassed to be Lon Chaney Jr. It, like, made him uncomfortable.
1: Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, once he took the name, you know, he didn't like the Jr. on it. Oh, yeah. I don't think he minded the long chain. He didn't particularly care for the junior on the end.
0: I, I, <laughs> I, I read an autobiography from um, Keenan Wynn, oh. and he said he was working with Cheney, mm-hmm. and, and Cheney Jr. said, look at me, I got grandkids, do I look like a junior to you?
1: <laughs> oh really? <laughs> oh, that's cool. I never heard that before, but I I had some pictures with them together. So, well, that's cool. <laughs> is
2: it, I, oh no, I was just going to say, is it safe to say, Ron, uh, Ron, that the name changed actually gave him a career boost when he went from Creighton Chaney to to Lon Cheney Jr.? Did the roles uh, in, did the roles improve? Was there a direct connection, or was it just that 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 no. uh, he was starting to break through on his own?
1: No, he. uh... Well, he did get more money. He signed with Fox, so he got a contract with Fox, so he was paid better, but he didn't get any particular great roles. And then when he uh, left Fox, or when the contract ended, he struggled. I mean, he was struggling, struggling, struggling to the very end. He'd been divorced and remarried and kind of lost his family through all of this, going into the picture business, you know, Um, And then he did Of Mice and Men.
0: Yeah, now, originally, Broderick Crawford was cast as Lenny, but Cheney really uh, campaigned for it. Well, he'd done it on the stage, right? Yeah, in California.
1: And once he did it in the West Coast, they they opened, and then they went to San Francisco. It was a huge hit up there. They came back, did an L.A. show, and from then on... uh, You know, that gave him his opportunity to obviously play it in the film. That's why Broderick didn't end up getting that role. And then it's kind of funny, later in their careers, Gramps played... uh, He played Harry Brock in Born Yesterday. Yes. In a subway circuit back east. And he was hoping to get that film role, and then Broderick took that (laughs) one They kind of got back at each other. Mm -hmm. They were good friends, too, and used to brawl and drink and have a good time together.
0: And I heard Janie Jr., was like they were using him before he even had the part to test the other actors who were they 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 were
2: auditioning for of mice and men. Isn't that how Lewis Milestone got convinced? Uh, yes, Ron?
1: absolutely. That's how he got the role. He didn't want to have him, but he did test. And what was it that he said? He said something along the lines that. After he tested all these different ones, just to read the parts for the other actors, I was auditioning. I couldn't see anyone else playing that role. After all of that,
2: it's funny. I like Roger Crawford, but I don't see him. Yeah, I don't see him as Lenny. I guess he was good in it, and he did it on Broadway. But now, you know, I can only yeah. uh, throughout all the versions of that yeah. that I've seen, there's one with John Malkovich. Oh yeah, I can only see. Uh,
0: I'm the, your, I, your grandpa. I can't. You know, in the same way. I can't. I mean, when after Phantom of the Opera, any version of Phantom of the Opera was terrible after the Cheney version. There was the Herbert Lum, the Didn't Claude, Claude Rains, Rains did it. Yeah, yeah and all terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and now, now, supposedly the other versions of of Mice and Men that they've done over the years have been good, but. I can't watch it with, without Cheney and Burgess Meredith together.
1: You know, the other guys were wonderful. I think they all did a marvelous job, but, you know, Gramps was the best Lenny ever.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and whenever uh, Cheney Jr. gets maligned, which you'll, you'll see people write, and they'll talk about him being some terrible actor or something, I I always think... Then they they obviously haven't seen Of Mice and Men, because his performance was amazing in there.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, honestly, I've seen Gramps in a lot of films. We used to watch them on TV here and there, you know. Oh, there's Gramps. Oh, that's cool. He's in another movie. And he did a lot of Indians mostly Westerns and things like that, of course, horror films. But it was when I saw Of Mice Man Men that he really i didn't see him as my grandfather anymore i saw him as his character he was so good at it i mean even to me i i believe that was his best
2: role ever was was it a he, setback for him ron not getting the part uh, in the hunchback movie in 1939 i know he was up for the part
1: he was up for the part um uh, would he have done it uh yeah i think he would have you know he knew sign language he grew up with it he lived with his grandparents mm-hmm. uh communicated via sign. It would have been interesting to see what he could do. And I actually have a photograph. I think he did a test makeup on it. And I've got a photo in our archives that uh, he's actually the hunchback, but he's about that age. Of course, he did it later on Route 66. Yeah, sure, much older, sure. but this one is from a much younger, so I'm
0: imagining without now, actually seeing it, it's got to be the test for it. I kind of wonder, though, if it was good that he didn't get it, because then it could have been like, you know, Frank Sinatra Jr. singing a Frank Sinatra song. <laughs> Interesting. And, and everybody would immediately go, oh, he's not his father.
1: <laughs> well, not always concerned him. I mean, you know, when you have a shadow like that over you, it's you know, no matter what, people didn't mean it intentionally, but, they, you know, no matter at one point or another... Even when they were talking about his own long and you know, long career, it inevitably would always they'd lead to his father and want to know about him, you know. And it's, you know, sometimes you, you probably after so many times you get a little frustrated with that, but you know, you know he was very proud of his father, loved him, and you know they had a they there was some tough times in there, so you know, and thin- all four scars. <laughs>
0: Then that led him on to
2: Man-Made Monster with Lionel Atwill. Well, you know, that's an interesting I, – yeah. I, I, I wanted to ask Ron if that's yeah. a turning point, you think, Ron, in his career. Because he's coming off of, of Mice and Men, which is a prestige film. Mm-hmm. And I guess then One Million B.C., you know, where he, of course, <laughs> where he makes the makeup and then he doesn't get a chance to 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 use his own makeup because of union mm-hmm. rules. But mm-hmm. but, but you it looks like a, there's a certain career trajectory or 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 a career direction there when he's coming off of great notices for the stage a part of of mice and men, and then also the film and within a year a year and a half, he's in horror films mm-hmm. and it seems like you know the corner was turned and he and he had trouble turning back by and, four.
0: and horror films are kind of looked on as people as like. You know, they, it, it gets looked down on.
1: Well, they were B-movies. I yeah. mean, even back in those days, they were considered B-movies. You know, nobody's going to like these, but then everybody loved them. And, you know, whoa, whoa, You know, we're hitting a jackpot here. You know, you, you, you well know there's always money involved, and then people reacted in such a way. I mean, you go back to, you know, I mean, they did Frankenstein way, way back when. <coughs> this thing. But this, really, the, the hunchback kind of, it wasn't really a horror film. But the Phantom really kind of set it. Nosferatu of course before that, but it was more on the Europe side. But once it got here, you know, Dracula and then Frankenstein and then The Bride and all those cool films, you know. It just it was a mystique that people like being scared, you know. I don't know what it is about it, but until this day, you know, being on the edge was kinda of fun too.
0: <laughs> and and he got his second great part, his most famous role as Lawrence Talbot who would uh, turn into the Wolfman in forty one.
1: Indeed, that was his—that was his his baby, as he referred to it. You know, nobody else could play it like he did, and he did it in all five of the Universal films. And you know, it was something that with 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 Lenny, he removed himself from his father's shadow. Now he was looked at his own. As his own actor and yeah. himself, like you said, Frank, you know, which led to the universal thing. Mm-hmm. And then with the Wolfman, he was able to create that character, you know, through his acting. And I think you see a lot of the sign in the the, the like you were saying, Gilbert. You know, Lon was, he was showing these signs for fear and for love and for well, you see those things in in the in the Wolf if you really look for them, the facial features and the the pantomime where the anguish was yeah. just. So evident, I think that's what endeared him to the fans that loved that yeah, film. Yeah, and it pick.
0: was, yeah, the Wolfman, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know, and he was always trying to not hurt anybody, just, you know, kind of that dual nature in people, and I think maybe that's a lot of people identify with that.
2: Well, also, he brings such sadness to the part, you know? Yeah. There, there's you. You could look at it on the surface as a B movie, but you know, there's he's tragic. It's like you know he brings so much to it.
0: It's kind of like a horror film noir. It is
1: huh. interesting. Yes, yeah. You know what? Never thought of it that way. I think you're right. You know, and it was such pathos in that role, but look at your, I mean, Bela Lugosi was in it, Maria Maria I mean, there was some fine, uh, actors. Oh, yeah. Ralph Bellamy, and, you know, the oh, yeah. cast was A plus, the movie, maybe budget was down, but, you know, with the talent they had in there, I think that's where those films, you know, rose above,
0: I and
2: mean, became classic. Don't forget yeah. Maria Uspanskaya. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the way you walk is thorny, there no fault of your own. <laughs> now, well, <that's> good. <laughs> now, Cheney Jr., though, he, they they always talk about this, that he he was uh, a bad, bad drinker.
1: Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to deny that, yeah, he yeah. liked to drink, there's no doubt about that. Uh, it was during those days, you know, he grew up in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, and you know, and by the time he... Was doing that. He liked to drink. The guys all drank. He hung out with Broderick and a lot of the stars at Universal were big boys back in those days. And he liked, you know, he wasn't just an actor. He liked to hunt. He liked to fish. He liked to ride horses. You know, I mean, he really had a lot of different hobbies. He did. I think the actors I, more so in those days did, as opposed to today.
0: I heard Cheney and Broderick Crawford, since they would be booked together a lot, <laughs> would get. Bomb that of their skulls and get into fist fights. I heard Robert other. Stack
2: Robert Stack said that I read in an interview. Oh, yeah? That they were kind of the terrors of the universal lot. Yeah,
0: they would beat each other up and then then they go action and they do the scene and then they go back to like punching each other and not even out of hatred.
1: Well, they were acting. I mean, I remember Graham's talking about that stuff, you know. So, okay, we're going to act this out, you know, and you know, both on set and all, Let's put it that way. But on set, you know, okay, I think in North of Klondike, they had a great... My grandfather did a lot of great fight scenes. He looked over his overall career, man. He did some great fight scenes. But... And that one, you know, he said, "Well, we were there, you know, we were throwing, pulling our punches, and turning, like what you do as actors." They both done stunts in their day, and all, of course, all of some, you know, they nailed each other. And I was like, "Okay," and then so they, I mean, they really went at it in that, and they were, got bloodied up, and and then afterwards, they would, they would, <laughs> they would have a good time too. <laughs> they did tend to like to drink together, and they could probably match. Uh, you know they can match each other pretty good in that regard. But one of the funniest ones was when they were—they were—they were the tarot, Universal for sure. But I don't know if you guys ever saw that photograph of them. My grandfather—he was in one of the sound stages or one of the sets, and he's looking at the ceiling. All the furniture is like upside down and stuck to the ceiling. Yeah. You know, and he's got this yeah. puzzled look on. I said, "How did this stuff get yeah. up <laughs> Apparently, yeah. the night before him and Brian, the tide went on, they went in there, and they, they turned everything upside down. They glued it and hammered it also when they came in. The next day, everything was upside down in the set. So they knew who did it, so they got a little bit of trouble on that one.
0: <laughs> now, now there was also, and and this, this, this was a bad thing that happened with Cheney through his drinking and the way they <laughs> would do live TV. He was in a live production of Frankenstein. Do you, do you know this story?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's
0: possible. I, you know, not being there, I don't know.
1: But that is as the story that they were live, and he thought they were doing a take, so he wasn't breaking stuff like he
2: was. <laughs> and uh, it's very strange we, to watch the footage of him picking up yes, the furniture yeah, and it, then putting yeah. it down safely.
0: Yes, you go. Why is he? Because he's supposed to smash the house to bits.
1: Right. Right. And, well, it makes it would probably. Could make sense that you know I don't know maybe he misread it or he didn't know. It. Oh well, yeah. Obviously he thought it, obviously he thought it was a rehearsal or he would have broken it. You know he was a pretty physical guy. He knew how to he knew how to play that role. It's kind of where he had his bread. He called his bread and butter really as Lenny. You were asked about oh yeah as a, as a horror actor, but he was equally as typed as Lenny. And,
0: and yeah. even up to the when the monkeys was the biggest show on the air. Uh-huh. He reprised his Lenny role. For oh yeah, that. Lenny
2: and George with Uncle Uncle Leo, Len Lesser. <laughs> Len Lesser.
1: Well, he did that throughout his career. You can see Lenny in a lot of it oh, when he loads. went back on stage a couple of times. I, I interviewed his stage manager at one time, and he said he was pretty frustrated. You know, they play cards after. You know, during the long stretches between. You know, the performances. And he said, yeah, you know, and when it, he would create a character, he'd get the role, and he creates create the character how he want to play it, and when they get there, they'd be directed in the direction. Oh, man, that is really good, but uh, can you put a little more of the Lenny in it? You know, and they did it to yeah. him a lot, so, you know, he just called it his bread and butter so he could pull it out of the hat at any time going to that character, so he was a little frustrated with it, but, uh, you know, it also gave him a good living, too.
2: Gilbert and I were talking, uh, Ron, about uh, there's a, there's a clip of him online toward the end of his life, and he's talking uh, with some small degree, I think, of resentment for com- the, the way the comedies, per- I guess, particularly Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein, which he uses the word ruins, r- you know, ruined the universal horror stories and, and and the horror films. I mean, did he feel that way? Did he?
1: Well, I think he knew the uh, once it went comedy that that. Cycle was over, and maybe it was the language they used at that time. Even you know, when I read what he wrote now, it was different than it is now. So different words could be interpreted mm-hmm. differently. You know what I mean? Uh, I think he enjoyed it, but he knew that that part of his career was done. It would
2: never take them serious again after a comedy. Because you know, he had a little bit of a flair for comedy. I mean, he was in a oh, couple absolutely. of Bob Hope pictures. He was in Here Come the Coeds. We, we talked had about a born wonderful yesterday.
1: Sense of humor. He really had a wonderful sense of humor. People don't know that, and he was very creative too. But he really had no formal education. He grew up, you know, in a train for the most part. Really, never went to school till he was older, and uh, uh, <laughs> you and, know. So.
0: And it's so funny in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Both Cheney and Bale Lagosi are very funny, and you know people don't realize it.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, well, they're playing it straight, but they're kind of adding that element. Oh, wait a second, this is a comedy, and I mean, playing it like that made it more funny. So, you know, <laughs> they they, de- they definitely were both. Uh, I mean, that's a classic. I, I I must admit, I love that film.
2: Do you have any sense? Or did he did he ever talk about that film, or if he had any fun making it?
1: He did have fun making, and I I think sometimes, you know, he'd been an actor a long time, and maybe sometimes, you know, if they're not, like, doing it, I know know that, because I still like to have a lot of fun on set, you know, and maybe he was a little more serious, (laughs) like, let's get this work done first, and then we can have some fun or something like that, you know. Uh, But, you know, that's... You, he you had know a great what? sense of humor, and I know that he loved the movie. I mean, so I don't know why there would be any controversy over it. It was obviously a huge hit for him. When, but he had been going through some personal things prior to that film, so that might have something to do with it.
0: When, when I was, you know, I was of that generation of kids who uh, horror movies and old movies started showing on TV. And mm-hmm. I wonder if Cheney realized that to my generation, Lon Cheney Jr. was the big star. It wasn't Lon Cheney Sr. to us. We knew he was related, but it was Lon Cheney Jr. that we all looked at as a star.
1: Well, you know, that's interesting you say. Now, so where did you grow up? Back east. Uh, and yeah,
0: up, in New York.
1: So, and I was from, you know, I grew up in Palm Springs area in California. It was a small town then, but... As I learned now that I do more of the family thing, you know, of all those shows where people on the East Coast and you had your horror host back there, they had them in Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York and down east. And, you know, I didn't, I never realized that, you know, out here, we didn't have that market. So he did. He gained a whole other generation of fans with those television shows. And then, of course, Corey Ackerman, famous Monsters magazine, just, you know, kind of cemented them.
0: In that oh, and and I, I have to tell you something, this right now, I'm I'm interviewing you from my apartment <laughs> on the wall uh, when you come
2: in, <laughs> we take a picture and send it to you. Ron. Yes,
0: there's <laughs> a fiberglass fa- life mask of Lon Chaney, Jr.
2: on the uh, wall cool. in, in a glass case.
1: Oh, cool. And,
2: I didn't know
0: you were such a big Cheney Jr. Oh, he, He's man. been oh obsessed God. with your
2: grandfather ever since, uh, well, since I knew him. Yeah. Forever. And
0: I also, because you mentioned Fari Ackerman and Famous Monsters, and Famous Monsters, they said that Lon Cheney Jr. was not feeling well, and they gave an address where you could write him a get well card. So mm-hmm. I was a little kid. I wrote him a get-well card, and I got back in a little envelope a, like, postcard-sized photo of the Wolfman, and it was signed Lon Chaney on the bottom. And I have that in a frame hanging on my wall.
2: You have to send a picture of the the life mask and a picture of that to Ron. Yes. Yeah, oh, so you
1: have... I know which one I know which one you're talking about. Did it say Dallas, Texas or something on the Ooh, back? I don't of know.
0: I would have to look. You yeah, see, did,
1: see you know, that's my grandfather. He loved kids, you know, I think that's why I was so close to him, you know. I mean, when I grew up with him I was a child, he passed away when I was seventeen years old. So my life with my grandfather was growing up with this. Man, that you know, I knew he was an actor, but he was Gramps to me. We didn't really you know, he would talk about the movies, but it was just kinda of, oh that's what he did, you know. To me he was more home and, and then I'd see him on TV go, oh wow, I thought he was home, you know.
0: <laughs> and and it seems like one of the reasons he was so great as Lenny is that in a lot of ways he was a big kid. He was. And and uh I remember seeing a quote where he said if he could, he'd adopt every single orphan because there's nothing lousier than growing up
2: unloved.
1: Well, he had a tough childhood. There's no yeah. doubt about
2: it, you know. Uh, did he try to adopt but, Janet Ann Gallo? Uh, yes, he did. Yeah, uh, yeah, no matter yeah. That, he sure. Tried to goes on Ghost of Frankenstein. Water.
0: And her brother. And her brother. Yeah. Because her mother died when she was eight, yeah. and and Cheney was in love with her. And we're going to be calling Janet Ann uh, uh, very
2: shortly. So we're, we're talking to her for the same Halloween episode, Ron.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: And I know Janet. I love her. She's oh. such a doll. We'll say hi know. for you.
0: Oh, we'll <laughs> give her your love.
1: <laughs> Yeah. So yes, he did, and he, you know, he liked kids. He, I think, he felt uh, that probably had to do with his own upbringing, for sure. No and, doubt about it.
0: And uh, you got you got to understand too. To Lon Chaney Jr. to me, is like to a little to a teenage girl what Justin Bieber is.
2: Ron, <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not kidding. <laughs>
1: That's hysterical. (laughs) Well, I'll have to get you something there from our collection somehow. You know. (laughs) Oh, thank
2: you, Ron. Is there something? Is there? There's so many other questions we could ask you. We'll do. We'll do it another time. Or when Uh, when you're in New York, you look us up. We would you talk about it. Stanley Kramer and High Noon and the Defiant Ones and all the other cool stuff he did in his career. But do you have something you you, you, you want to plug or something you want to talk about? I know you've been working on the... A, the, hundred, uh, a Century of change, Yeah, Century of Change's yeah. book. You want to well, say anything about
1: it? Well, that is a book. My, You know, I found that book uh, when we moved my grandmother years and years ago, and I tried to figure out what I wanted to do, but I know when I found it, it was something that had to do with... Uh, Following my own path and uh, making a new film of it this day, and I kind of been researching ever since I'm back working on it. But he announced it on Johnny Carson in 1969, wow. and uh, I remember him working on it. So I kind of jump off because I do some producing and other things, so I kind of get sidetracked. But it's never far from my mind. Everything I do relates to the cheney so I just get more knowledgeable as I try different things myself. So hopefully in this next year, I'll. Uh, Uh, get that first one out, and that's the early part of our family, and I really cover the early uh, years of the family and the deafness, I call it. Chapter one's called The Foundation.
2: And don't you have a desire to make a film, did I get this right, about your great-grandpa?
1: Absolutely. That has been my goal all along, and I've been writing a few scripts myself, and uh, maybe we can go into that next time around. Next
2: time. (laughs) Okay, so... Well, I hope that we we see that book. Well, I hope so, too.
1: It's been a goal I owe to the fans, and so I've kind of done my thing right now. I kind of tried different projects, and I think I've got to get back to that, and that's my next goal.
2: Good. And Gilbert will want to sign one.
0: Uh, Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Well,
1: you got it. I look forward to (laughs) do in person someday. And and if you
0: happen to have... The gold, the silver handle from The Wolfman. <laughs> Actually,
1: I have a identical replica of Bob Burns, who owned that piece. Uh, years ago, we had a new cast done by this... Uh, a- Great friend of ours, Henry Alvarez, who was a brilliant artist. And uh, we recast the original prop, so I do have a couple reproductions of that, and it's oh. very cool.
0: Oh, and, and I have and, a
1: set of his Wolfman teeth, too. That was oh, wow. Of, you know?
0: And oh, God, that's God, the Wolfman, <laughs> wolfman <laughs> teeth. I do. <laughs> oh, my God. No Wolfbane. <laughs> Wolfman's Teeth. Absolutely. Also, we're supposed <laughs> to ask you...
1: Hey, I have my own, too. You know, it runs in the blood.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Did Cheney and Burgess Meredith ever speak uh, uh, years... Did they stay passing. in touch?
1: Not really that I'm aware of. I tried to interview Burgess once years ago, and he was just coming out with his book, and I wanted to kind of get a comment from him. You know, that's what I've tried to do over the years, get comments from various people, you know, about their thoughts on Shane, kind of put it into the area of the story that it would be long. But uh, he was working on his book. So I really didn't get any real clear-cut comment from him, unfortunately.
2: They were such a great
0: team. Oh, yeah. Oh. Now I'm angry at Burgess Meredith. <laughs> yeah, you know, he wanted to release his book, but, you know, I, I got I'm, it. No, <laughs> I'm saying right now on my podcast, fuck you, Penguin.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> don't, don't take it to heart,
1: Gil. <laughs> hey, you know, their, their work speaks for itself. It was an amazing yeah. movie, and if do not care. of them. Fuck yeah. you,
0: Penguin. <laughs> And fuck you, Mickey from uh, the Rocky, from Rocky movies.
2: You know that. You know, <laughs> thir- Thirty-nine was a tough year, Ron. That film. That film could have won Best Picture, but stiff competition in
1: the wrong year. And I think he could have won an yeah. Academy Award for. It, but again, best year in film ever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I have to wrap up cuz Janet Ann Gallo is waiting. <laughs> she's for she's me. waiting for our oh, call, Ron. Shit. I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and we've been talking to Ron Chaney. That's right, Ron Chaney. Uh, <laughs> who is the grandson of the Wolfman himself, Lon Chaney Jr., and the great-grandson of the Phantom of the Opera and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And and you'll have to come back on my podcast.
1: Well, I'd love to. You let me know when you're ready.
2: And look us up when you're in New York, Ron. I shall. Happy Halloween. This was a lot of fun.
1: (laughs) Same to you guys. Thank you. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to everybody. Thanks.
0: The Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast Producer of the Month is DFA Records. Thank you, DFA Records. Be just like DFA Records and get rewarded for supporting our podcast. Head over to Patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. For a set amount each month, you can get some colossal benefits, such as access to new podcast episodes before anyone else, early access to tickets to live podcast tapings, exclusive video hangouts, and just added, I will record a personalized roast Of you and only you, so you can share with your friends me telling you what a schmuck you are.
2: Well, I don't have to join Patreon for that.
0: And you don't have to pay me either, because you are a schmuck. That I do for free. I want no money. That's my... I just speak the truth. Uh, I'm so blessed. You are a schmuck. (laughs) So go to Patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Gilbert Gottfried. Thank you for your generosity.
2: And thank you, DFA Records.
0: Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried. And this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. And our guest is a former child actress who appeared in such films as Canyon Passage, Till We Meet Again, It Ain't Hey. And she shared the screen with performers such as Ray Land. Dana Andrews, Susan Hayworth, and Abbott and Costello. But she will always be near and dear to our hearts, co-starring at the tender age of five with Bela Lugosi and my man Lon Chaney Jr. in 1942's universal horror classic Ghost of Frankenstein. Please welcome to the show, Janet Ann Gallo. Hi there. Hi.
2: (laughs) Hi, Janet. Thanks for doing this.
0: And I want to tell our audience just how much we appreciate this. Because we had you booked for another day. And then we got a call that that you weren't feeling well. Uh, Yeah, I
3: had a sore throat and my voice was cracking a
0: lot. Oh, yeah. And I thought that's gonna be it. She'll use this as an excuse. She'll say, <laughs> I don't feel good. And and you like called back and said, Okay, I'll do it the next day. Right. And that, that's that's no, my
3: pleasure, really.
0: Now I gotta ask you first, do you remember doing a short film called uh On a Prayer with Larry? Yes. Oh, you do? Yes. <laughs> now could you name the other two stars in that?
3: Um, let me see. It was um hold on just a second, I'm trying to think. Chuck, was it Chuck Connell?
2: Chuck, Chuck McCann. Connelly. Oh Chuck, Chuck McCann. McCann. Chuck,
3: Chuck McCain, that's right. Chuck yeah. McCain.
0: Chuck McCann.
3: And uh, um
0: Larry Storch.
3: Both Larry of them Storch and also um of the gal there that she and I had a great time. Um, I'm trying to think of her name. <laughs> it's terrible.
2: Um, That's okay. Let us yeah. know when you think of it. But Be- because I, yeah, what's so what's
0: <laughs> so funny about this? And now interviewing you. We already interviewed Larry Storch and Chuck McCann. Yeah, they've both been guests on this show. On
2: this show, Janet.
0: So we've got the entire
2: cast of that film. (laughs) (laughs) What's it called? On a prayer?
3: It was a fun it was a fun uh, little movie to, to be in. It was really fun.
2: Now
0: I gotta now, to me. Like, and, and I, when we were asking you to be on the show, and I remember you were saying, oh, no one knows who I am. And to me, being <laughs> being a monster fan, uh, like, the name Janet Ann Gallo is like saying Julia Roberts.
3: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I never would have thought that. <laughs> How about that, Janet? <laughs> That's really something, because I, I wasn't even involved in... And anything uh, 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, I was just doing my thing, you know, <laughs> and that was about it. And then I got introduced to a lot of people, and uh, before I knew it, I was doing the convention shows.
0: Oh, great. Now, I got to say to the audience, and this is uh, an interesting thing, the, they're, you're, you're best known to horror fans like myself for Ghost of Frankenstein. Right. And there is a scene in the movie, you're like five years old, you're a little girl by herself playing with her ball. And these right. like older boys who are bullies, take your ball and throw it on a rooftop. Lon Chaney Jr. as the Frankenstein monster <laughs> shows up, they get scared and run away. Now, you, as the little girl, are not at all afraid of the monster. You just look at him as a friend, and it's like you could see he's touched by your innocence. And in real life, wasn't that your relationship with Lon Chaney Jr.?
3: Yes. I I really loved Lon. I really loved him. And uh, when my mother passed away... Uh, he and his wife Patsy um, wanted to adopt me and my brother both.
2: Yeah, we just talked he about did. that with Ron Cheney a few minutes oh, ago. Ron Cheney okay. sends his love, by the way.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. he's a sweetheart. We yeah. have a lot of yeah. fun together. Now, your 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 mom died when you were eight, I think.
3: Uh huh. Right. Yeah, I was so eight years
0: old. So, Ron Cheney Jr. wanted to adopt you and your yes. brother. Right. But your father was against this.
3: Oh, yeah. My, my dad wouldn't even consider it. But, you know, that's because he, he said, no way, I'm not going to lose my kids. I yeah, lost my wife. That's enough. Oh, of you know? course.
0: Sure. Now, uh, but you, he used to drive you to the Cheney's house, and you and your brother would spend the day with Lon Cheney. Well, really, it was me and my mother. Oh, you and your mother. Oh, okay.
3: Oh, yeah. We spent many, many days uh, at the Cheney house. Um, My mom was uh, what you would call probably a stage mom at the time. And uh, she she and Lon got along real well, and so did Patsy, his wife, with her. So they used to invite us over all the time. We were always going over to
0: the Cheney's house. And I heard on the set. Lon Chaney, this Lon Chaney Jr., who played the top four monsters, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, and The Wolfman. Uh, And he was like he had a reputation back then. Like adults didn't get along with him, it seems, because he was a drinker. But you, I mean, it's like, uh, you got through to him. I think he, he loved children.
3: He did. And he did, He had uh, two boys uh, from a previous wife. And uh, that's where Ron comes into He's one of the grandsons. And um, he didn't have any children with Patsy, his wife, at the time. And she wanted children. And, of course, that's how it all came about, that they wanted to adopt uh, me and my brother.
2: How did you come to be cast in The Ghost of Frankenstein to begin with, Janet?
3: Well, I had worked in one short little film, uh, Almost Married, I think it was the name of it, and I just had a very small part in it uh, for Universal. And then they invited me back to try out for Ghost of Frankenstein, and my mother took me back, and I got the part.
2: And you weren't at all frightened uh, by the subject matter? by by the, by the... Oh, no. Yeah.
0: No, not at all. No. It, it's so funny
2: how the movie and your relationship
0: with him imitate each other. Yes, that's and, very true. And he would, in his full Frankenstein makeup, ride you around on his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. he and he would go off, you know. And as Frankenstein, he would walk off and buy you ice cream.
3: Oh yeah, he was very good to me, and so was the director and Bella. They were all very good to me. Oh, tell us about
0: Bella Lugosi. Another. Oh, he was
3: a great guy, great guy, very sweet, and uh, I really had the um, what would you say the whole uh, cast. I had everybody just having a good time with me. I had fun on the on the whole thing because you know it was just like a big game for me. I had fun.
0: Because Lugosi, he was returning from uh, *Son of Frankenstein*, right, right, right. where he played the great part Igor, uh-huh. and it was yes. like a a great role that a know. great performance. Yeah, he was good. Where he was Very like, good. "Put my brain in the <laughs> monster's body, <laughs> right. Igor's, bro, Igor's body." Is no good, but I will have the strength of a hundred men. Are you oh, having...
3: That's very good. That's are, you, are, very you having... good. <laughs> are you having a flashback, <laughs>
0: Janet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the two monsters, Lon Chaney Jr. and Bela Lugosi, were were like sweethearts to you.
3: Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, they were all so nice to me, and they always had things going on for me to do and play, and you know, always. So it it was great.
2: I found it was this just interesting, a fun Janet. You ta- time you talked about memorizing the entire script. You knew everybody. Yeah. You knew everybody's part.
3: Yeah, I had to because I didn't. Uh, I didn't read at that time.
2: <laughs> yeah, what, what were you, five what? years? We, we said it in the intro, yeah, it but five it's has Yeah, you and were five? my mother
3: would read me lines of uh, before my part would come in. So I'd know that part when they would say it, and then I would have my lines right underneath.
0: And um, so your mother uh, was, like, very pretty... Oh yes, she sure was so i I kind of imagine she was prob- she was like an actress or wanted to be an actress in her day,
3: yeah, she really um she was very pretty and she came down from San Jose, California, and first thing she did was bleach her hair blonde, and she was um Irish and uh, Swedish, so she her complexion did very well with the blonde hair so
2: and I've heard you describe her, Janet, uh, as, a, as a classic stage mother.
3: Oh, yeah, she was. She was great. She was great. We had a very close relationship uh, as long as I had her.
0: And could you, can you tell me some of the activities that Cheney and Lugosi would have with you to keep you entertained, if you remember any of those?
3: Um they play hide and seek. That kind
2: of thing. <laughs> was, was he wearing the makeup when you.
3: Oh, yeah, they'd have the makeup on. See, I used to watch him get his makeup put on, Lon. So that's why people would ask me, Oh, weren't you scared? I wasn't scared because I knew what he looked like underneath the makeup.
2: That's great.
0: So, Lon Chaney as the Frankenstein monster and Beta Lugosi as Igor were playing hide and seek with you.
3: That's right. <laughs> they hide and seek, or, or they put me on on their leg and bounce me up and down like a horse ride. You know? I mean, it was fun. It was, fun. Gil, it was g- a fun. I never had um, a bad moment on the set. Never.
2: G- Gilbert would give three years of his life to go back in time and, and play hide and seek <laughs> with, with you guys. What do you remember? We had about, a good time. What, you remember anything about your other co stars, Janet? About Ralph Bellamy or Cedric Hardwick?
3: Um <laughs> well, um not really because they didn't pay a lot of attention to me.
2: Well you were and you were yeah. five. And light
3: yeah, with their own lives, you know, so the ones I was with was Bella and and Lon most uh-huh. of the time and a little bit of Evelyn Anchors too. Oh Evelyn oh, Anchors, yeah. She
0: was she was the the scream queen of all the universal monster movies, this beautiful actress, Evelyn Anchors.
3: Pretty. Very pretty. And, and, and very, very nice to me.
2: Do you so. recall anything else about you were in an Abbott Costello movie too? I, you had a short career, yeah. Janet. You, you were in a- *In Aide Hay*. Right. Uh, when Gilbert and I love Abbott and Costello, do you, you, you have any <laughs> memories of that? Or and I, by the way, Shemp Howard was in uh, *It Ain't Hay*.
0: Oh wow!
2: Worth mentioning.
0: <laughs> wow. So Abbott and <laughs> Costello and Champ. Do you have any yeah. memories of the unholy three?
3: Well I have a lot of memories of of Lou. Um Abbott was again uh kind of in his own world. Uh-huh. And uh but Lou was very, very sweet to me, very nice, and we joked around all the time and he was always teasing me and stuff, you know. It was it was a nice relationship. Um Abbott, uh, like I said, he was he was in his own place in his own world and so professional. That was fine.
0: And and but you and Lou Costello would yeah. play together.
3: Oh yeah, <laughs> and and then when I had to first, I had to slap him. No, let's see. I don't remember. If I <laughs> kissed him first. <laughs> I did one one time. I kissed him, and one time I slapped him.
0: So I can't remember which came first. See, he was used to getting smacked by Bud Abbott in their. <laughs> I know, act. but I smacked him too. <laughs> yeah, that that's an honor smacking uh-huh. Luke Costello, and so. <laughs> So would would he be there going, hey, Janet? <laughs> <laughs> what? <I don't> know. <laughs>
2: you had a short career, Janet. You, you, when you when your mom passed away, I was reading a bio uh, about you. And when your mom passed away, your your dad would continue to take you uh, uh, to auditions and take you on sets. But yeah, it for kind a of... while,
3: you know, uh, she passed away when I was eight. I think yeah. I stopped completely when I was about eleven. I didn't uh, do anything after that. Dad couldn't keep doing that because he had a job to do. You know, he had to go to work So where my mom was not working, so she always took me everywhere that I had to go, you know. And uh, we'd ride the buses and the streetcars and stuff to go to the to Universal Studios and different studios that we'd go to. But uh, Dad couldn't keep that up. After a couple of years, he said, "I can't do this anymore," and so that, I just dropped out.
2: And did you ever consider going back into acting? I mean, you you, you say you you made your last film at the age of eleven. Did yeah. you ever? ever did the, uh, the bug ever bite you in in the uh, in the years to come?
3: Well, a little bit in high school, but I never did anything about it. Never did. Anything you had about a family by
2: then, and
0: now you yeah. you had gotten married at one point, and then I think yeah. you split with your husband. And yeah. I, I remember reading an interview that said you went into an acting school. For I a went to
3: upstairs uh, College and took drama classes, yes. And Just for fun.
2: Did you Did you <laughs> tell everybody there of... who you were?
3: No. <laughs> and, and, I never did. And, and I no. think
0: you said you went into it because that's something you felt uh, comfortable with. Yes,
3: I did, and I had been just gotten a divorce, so it was you know a case of where I just needed something to occupy my time, and so that's what I did.
0: Now, what I wonder, because you know, at at one point you think, well, you know, your mom died, and then your career uh, stopped, but like uh, with so many child actors, when they hit eleven or twelve their career ends anyway because they're looked upon as, gee, they're old.
3: Right, exactly. That's very true. And and, and then if you can get through that little bit of teenager, pre, pre-teen life, then you can hit it again. But that's, that takes a lot of uh, of uh, an agent working with you and trying to get your job.
0: And, and it's like the most painful time for kids because they'll get – a pimple or their voice changes and like everyone's like going, Ooh, what happened to you you know like like just aging and just growing into an adult is like a bad thing
3: well i think you know you i went to i remember going to one uh one uh, director's office once with my dad but you know you get you get rejected real quick because if you haven't done anything in a long time, they don't really care.
2: <laughs> yeah, I find it so. interesting, uh, Janet. So, so you leave the business at eleven, and you're you're you know, uh, for lack of a better word, a civilian for all these years. And what? <laughs> yeah. And what happened about ten years ago? You you st- the, oh. the people from the convention started coming around, and
3: well, what happened was I went to um, the Jack and Jill Universal uh, luncheon at uh, the Sportsman's Lodge. And, oh, uh, I know, I know they, the
2: Sportsman's Lodge right there in uh, uh, Sherman Oaks.
3: Right. And they uh, said, oh, we've been looking for you forever. And I'm going, what? And they said, yeah, you were the little girl. Yeah, I was a little girl. And and they started talking to me. And they said, well, we've been looking for you. And I said, well, I've been around you know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know you were looking for me. <laughs> but I went to the Jack and Jill luncheon and, and then after that, I was constantly... Asked to come to the luncheon, and then that's when I started doing signings.
0: So, how does it feel to know that to this day you have fans like myself who uh, just go, who know who Janet Ann Gallo is and are major fans? Tell them the truth, Janet. It's a little scary. It is. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Because I think, oh, do I really. No, I know people write to me and they'll ask me questions and stuff, which is fine. I don't mind answering anything, but um, it is a little scary because you don't know if they really want to talk to you or if they're just doing this for fun or what, you know, in today's world, it's a different world than when I was, you know, coming up in the, in the business. So it's a little different. But uh, I have met some wonderful people out there at the conventions back east in New Jersey and in uh, Pennsylvania that are just wonderful people. I mean, they're great. And And they come up to me and bring their little kids up to me, and and it's really
0: nice. It's really nice. Now, did you work on a movie with Buster Keaton?
3: Uh,
0: Yes. Yes, I did.
2: Wow.
3: I I didn't... uh, I didn't have any big lines in it but I was in the movie. Yes. Um Something Minds the Baby. Uh what was the name of that?
0: Honey? Oh, our, oh, yeah, we
3: uh, we uh, could butch look mine, it up. Which mind's, minds the Baby. baby. Yeah. But did
0: did you have any memories of Buster Keaton?
3: Um not really because I only worked on the set just a few times. I had about four or five scenes and that was it. So I close. I
0: Frank and I always laugh about how many guests we've had on this podcast who have who have worked
2: and known Buster Keaton. Yeah, I think you're the fifth or the sixth one, Janet. Yeah. Well, well we- I
3: met him and everything, but I didn't have any real lines with him. In other words, I didn't have any scenes with him.
2: Right.
0: And being a... Oh, oh sorry. Being a former child actress... How do you feel when you hear and read these stories about how many child performers uh, just had terrible lives after that?
3: I know, I know. I, 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 I feel very badly for them. I had a mother that I think even if she had not died, she would have protected me from a lot of stuff because she was a very strong Catholic woman, and I don't think she would have allowed me to get in with the wrong crowd or anything like that. That's just my own opinion.
2: Well, I have to tell you, Janet, we started, in addition to all the people we've interviewed who knew Buster, Chuck McCann, uh, James Caron, uh, Frankie Avalon we talked to who yeah. worked with Buster, was actually actually a pretty long list. I think you're the sixth or seventh person. I have to tell you that when we started this podcast, Gilbert and his lovely wife, Dara, uh, and me, what, uh, now almost two years ago, maybe a year and yeah. a half ago. And from the very beginning, <laughs> when we sat down and we started making a guest list, Gilbert was saying, I... we have to get to Janet <laughs> she you, Your name was <laughs> it, on the list from the very beginning, from every, day one. Oh, that's
0: and, very sweet. Yeah, every... Very nice of you guys. It's true. Every week, we were, like, trying to look for these different... You know, we've had some big names on, and... Uh, I kept saying, no, no, look, we got to get Janet
2: and Gallo. (laughs) It it started to become a runner after a while, Janet.
3: Oh, wow. Well, you know, there's only like um, one show that or one convention I haven't been to yet. And that's the chiller
2: one. I don't know if you've ever. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. We did the one in New Jersey last year.
3: Yeah, I haven't been chiller yet. That's the only one. Outside of that, I've been to Monster Madness and all the other um ones that, you know, Monster Madness, uh, Monster Palooza, Monster uh gosh, I'm trying to think of all of them. They're all different and they're all very nice. I mean, they really really treat you very well.
0: And I I got to tell you, this is it's true when I say I look at you as Julia Roberts and Sandra Bullock. And I was, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I was just telling Ron Chaney, to me, when I watched Ron Chaney Jr. in a movie, I'm a teenage girl watching Justin Bieber.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's pretty neat. Well, Janet... Uh, it- it's, it's a th- it's a thrill to talk to you finally. <laughs> it's been, like I said, you
3: Well, I'm very flattered that you guys wanted to talk to me. Oh, really uh, you, don't,
0: you don't know how many times uh, <laughs> when we had meetings to discuss who I, I kept yelling out, Janet Ann Gallo, get her. <laughs> Find out some information you get her on the show. This,
2: is, this fulfills a lifelong dream for Gilbert, Chad. Yeah,
0: see, I could die now. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks. This was on my bucket list. So, <laughs> I'll, let me just wrap up. Uh, this has been... I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, And... Finally, the star of *Ghost of Frankenstein*, who worked with Lon Chaney Jr. and Bela Lugosi, and Lionel Atwill, and Ralph Bellamy, and Evelyn Ankers, and Buster Keaton, and Buster Keaton, and Abbott and Costello, and Chimp from the Three Stooges. The great, do you remember anything about Chimp before we let you go? No, uh-uh. Okay, <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. Uh, we have been talking to the great
2: Janet and Gallo. Thank, thank you so Jan- much. Janet, happy no, Halloween. And, and look us up when you're at the, let us know when you're coming to Chiller in New Jersey.
3: Okay, well, when they invite me, I will come.
2: Yeah, because <laughs> okay. we'd love to meet you in person.
3: Okay, and I'd love to meet you guys too. Thanks again, Janet. Thank
0: you for doing this show. It was a thrill for me. Bye -bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.